Well, beloved listeners, for some months I've been tweeting my followers, asking, begging, demanding that they look at uh, Rachel, Rachel Perkins' The Australian Wars. It's a three-part documentary, dramatised documentary series, which tracks the bloody battles fought on and for Australian soil. I watched it with uh, my wife, Patrice, who's a stolen gen baby, and we found it almost intolerable. We'd look at a bit and then stop and gather our strength to look at the next bit. It is not, in any sense, a congenial program. It is a horror story. But you must, must see it. If any program is uh, compulsory viewing, this is it. Over the past three decades, uh, Rachel Perkins, of course, has won oodles of awards for her films, her docos and TV dramas. But uh, her latest has to be her most impactive. The Australian Wars is available to watch on SBS On Demand and, as I say, compulsory viewing. Rachel joins me now from Alice Springs. It's a pleasure to speak to you and congratulations. Before we kick off, though, we should warn uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that uh, this chat may contain the names of deceased persons and uh, content you will find distressing. Rachel, congratulations. You're uh, an Arenda and Calcadoon woman and your dad is, of course, the late, great Charles Perkins. What did he tell you about your personal connection to this history? Yes, yeah, so reflecting on what I knew when I was growing up, I'm sort of surprised that we knew what we did in a way because... I can't remember when I knew, but I was a young girl and I knew that my great-grandmother had been raped um, and, and uh, chained to a tree uh, and re- repeatedly used uh, in that manner or abused. And so that's sort of, str- it's, it's sort of such brutal, it's such a brutal image, um, but that we knew that from a young age is quite surprising. And, of course, that's on my Aranda side. That's my grandmother's mother. Um, I didn't know that there was a massacre associated with that event um, and that she was spared and was a survivor of that. That sort of came later with more research, which was really there in front of me, if I cared to look. Um, But we'd also been aware of frontier violence between the Kalkadoon people, which is my father's father, and the native police at a place called Battle Mountain, which is reasonably famous if you you know if you're aware of this sort of history, it's it's been um, written about extensively. So I was aware that we were called you know the Fighting Calcadoons, and we had that on our grandfather's side, and also this you know hideous um, story on our grandmother's. So that's sort of what I was aware of, but I think that was only within my family, you know. So you don't really get the full picture. You just get what happened to your family. And I suppose in exploring this series, that's what we tried to stitch it all together to show the full big history. Rachel, if watching your film was so overwhelming to us, it must have been so cathartic, so traumatic for you because you had to work on this project for years. 
Yes, well, I didn't want to do it <laughs> because of that reason. I, I, I was familiar with the history in many ways. I'd made a, another documentary series called First Australians where I traversed some of that reading and those records. And so I sort of knew what I was getting into. And it was horrible. I mean, you know, when you're sitting alone reading the books and the primary sources, it's really horrible. You know, and I was working in my basement uh, through COVID, reading these terrible books, but it's nothing compared to what people went through at the time, you know. But again and again, you forced yourself to confront things on our behalf, in a way. And for the series, you actually went to Blackfellas Bones. Ironically, it's now a cattle station, and you had to trespass to go onto your family's ancestral lands. Yes, well, that's a very common experience for Aboriginal people, of course, uh, that don't have any land rights or native title. Um, and although, you know, it's progressing, people like me, my family, we, we don't have any rights to any land. Um, so, yes, you either get permission, which we tried to do. We did try and contact the owners and um, we never heard back from them. So ultimately I just, you know, these are big cattle stations. So, you know, they are hundreds and hundreds of square kilometres. So, yeah, I did. I trespassed, <laughs> I admit it. And, um, but I did think at the time, well, if they want to charge me for trespass, it's going to be a great publicity stunt <laughs> for the series. <laughs> say, that, say that again. Rachel, when do we date the wars from? When do they technically begin? Well, I suppose, you know, the thing about this warfare, it's sporadic and it happens over a period of time and mixed in with the warfare, there's friendships and there's all sorts of complexity because these are colonial wars where what we call the frontier is moving. So as settlers arrive in a place or the British occupy a certain place, that's what we call a frontier. It's the zone of where people meet and these complex relationships happen. So that frontier moved, but it definitely began in Sydney. Shortly after Philip and the First Fleet arrived, there were escalating violent incidences. And it got more violent as more settlers arrived because, of course, you need more land. And Philip did his best to follow the instructions and befriend the natives, as um, they were referred to, and he did that very successfully in many ways. But, yeah, well, so the, I... The I, part I, of the story that most people know, of course, is he basically kidnapped Ben along. Yes, and this is what people did, you know, and you can see that it would make sense. He's trying to contact these people. They don't want anything to do with him. So ultimately he decides, well, I'll just grab one of them and I'll try and befriend them and I'll find out more info and more intelligence from them. So that's what he does with Ben Long. And he found a very um, colourful character in Ben Long and he was desperate to secure his friendship. But ultimately, you know, the colony expands. Philip is in charge of a colonising operation. That's his job. He needs more land. He has more mouths to feed. You know, and he's given no rights to sort of recognise Indigenous ownership to land under the British instructions that he's given. So, yes, it's bound to end in conflict. If you don't acknowledge people's rights to land and you take their land from them, the conflict will result. But as you point out, it's a total myth that Philip and the other colonisers didn't recognise the connection 
that Aboriginal people had to their land. That's right, very quickly. I mean, these are very, you know, this is the Enlightenment period. Philip's a very intelligent, seasoned veteran. He quickly understands that Aboriginal people, you know, along the Parramatta River have a different language, that Benelong has an association with certain places in Sydney Harbour. He describes them as his country. Philip indeed is warned not to expand into Baramatagal territory up the Parramatta River into Darug land. And so he's well aware that people have an association with land. And you see this again and again in the diaries and journals and letters of people who uh, have a little bit more insight that they say, you know, these people believe themselves to be the true possessors of the soil. And, you know, they recognise that they are in a war for who will have the ultimate possession of that soil. So it's a repeating narrative you find across the country. People are very aware. One of the myths you uh, you bust spectacularly is that Aboriginal people didn't fight back. And uh, I think this is probably the moment to introduce the story of uh, Pemmelboy. Yes, well, Pemmelwoy, some of your listeners will be, of course, aware of him. He's quite a well-known figure, relatively well-known figure, and he was a Bidiagul man from Botany Bay. And he's the first sort of person whose name is recorded as fighting back. And he killed Philip's gamekeeper for a reason we don't know exactly why, but that sort of set off a chain of events where Philip um, responded in a very military way. But yes, he took the fight right into the streets of Parramatta and threatened to kill any white man that dared approach him. And, you know, he was meant to be a very powerful figure. There's an extraordinary sketch of him in a canoe, um, one of the very few images, well, the only image we have of him. Um, But there is this myth, you know, that Pemmelwoy busts in, in the records is that Aboriginal people didn't resist. You know, you you hear these things, oh, the Māori resisted, you know, and that's why they got a treaty. Well, all of that's absolutely a concoction. (laughs) I mean, they did resist, but we resisted here. And one of the reasons Henry Reynolds says is that our resistance was so strong that that's why the colonial office decided to indeed have the Waitangi Treaty in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But anyway, I mean, it is... It is a great story of resistance and we can be very proud of that in our country, I think, uh, as we are proud of the men and women who went off to fight for, you know, the modern Australian nation. They went to do that in defence of their country and so did Aboriginal warriors. You began our conversation by citing that horrendous case of rape, but it's the horrific treatment of Aboriginal women and girls that flows right through this narrative. It does, and it's an important thread, I think, because one of the defining features of the occupation of Aboriginal land is that there were no white women, for want of a better term, on the frontier because it wasn't seen as a suitable place for women and, you know, the British didn't bring enough women uh, when they came to occupy the territory. So, you know, you've got mostly young convict males and mostly single settlers out on the frontier and the conflict immediately begins over women. And it's, look, certainly in Australia, prior to European occupation, there was conflict over women between Aboriginal groups constantly. But here it was on a scale that was devastating. 
to Aboriginal communities. And you cite uh, documents that many settlers regarded this as a sport. Well, yes. I mean, we're talking about a period um, when slavery was still legal and practised all around the world by not only the British but many other colonial governments. So it wasn't much of an extension. You know, if you can buy and sell an African person, well, you could equally use an Aboriginal woman in whatever way you liked. So it just was a feature of this. It, it, it's a feature of Australian history that people don't like to talk about, but it was a common feature that triggered violence. Um, it, people, first they came to take, the land, and then they also took the women and children, for that matter, for often for labour and uh, and sex too. The voice of Rachel Perkins, and we're talking about her uh, her series, the Australian Wars. Okay, let's let's go to the very deep south of Van Diemen's Land and uh, look at events that, well, can justifiably be described as genocidal. Yes, well, there's a big debate about uh, genocide um, globally and just for your listeners, the sort of definition is that it has to be intended. There has to be an intention to wipe out a people for it to be defined as genocide. And so there's an argument whether that was the intent in Tasmania or in certain parts of Tasmania. And I'm, I'm no expert on this. Um, others can speak more deeply on this issue, but certainly in Tasmania... The Tasmanian Aboriginal community say themselves that there were areas where clans, uh, numbers of clans, were wiped out as a result of um, violence and then removal from their country. And, you know, what can one say about that? Well, well what one can say is that hundreds died on both sides, black and white, in a war that was never declared. And as you point out, it was a war against, well, against citizens. Yes, I mean, that's the thing. We understand war as between armies, you know, and I think that's why it's hard for us to understand this or for some people to accept it as a war because often it was settlers, um, sometimes with government officers, whether they be military or police, but often settlers were told to defend themselves and take up arms against Aboriginal people, and certainly that was the case in Tasmania. Um, every able-bodied man in the colony, with every soldier, was required to participate in what was called the general movement. Uh, which was to push Aboriginal people into a certain area in Tasmania where they could where they could be contained. So, I mean, this is a huge military operation, and it's overseen by a highly experienced colonial administrator and military officer in Governor Arthur. You know, this this is this is a military campaign. They were fighting with every strategy they had available to them because the Tasmanian Aboriginal resistance was so strong. You say in the series that of the nine Aboriginal groups that occupied the northwest region of Tasmania, no one has left today, not one single descendant. So I found it poignant to meet Rodney Dillon. Tell us about Rodney. 
Yes, so there's many clans in Tasmania, many nations. So we're just talking about the northwest region because obviously Aboriginal people survived in Tasmania and it's a great credit to their resilience that they did under such circumstances. But there were um, some women who went off to live with sealers on remote islands and a lot of the descendants today are related to those women, are descendants of those women and sealers in Tasmania. So Rodney Dillon is an incredible Indigenous leader in Tasmania. He's um, been involved in the movement all his life and uh, he's a big burly fella, you know, and he's a, he's a diver and a fisherman and he still hunts and swims in the waters of Tasmania and he's, he's very emotional in this documentary series, which is very touching because he really, he manages to reach into history and put himself in it and imagine what it was like for people like me and, and the viewers today. He has this great empathy and the history is all around him. He carries it within him and, you know, he he's a quietly spoken man but he, he's a very deep thinker. But the forcefulness in what he says, that he's uh, never driven across the Batman bridge because, of course, Batman was a, uh, a bounty hunter. Yes, well, that's the thing. Across Australia, there are these towns, iconic places or statues to people who were part of the colonial process, like John Batman in Tasmania, who was a bounty hunter, and Rodney refuses to drive over the Batman Bridge, named after him. And also, of course, in just down the street from this radio station in Alice Springs, there's Wilshire Street, named after a policeman who is a known murderer and, you know, abuser of Aboriginal women. We have a street named after him in Alice Springs. So, you know, Indigenous people, we're sort of quite used to these um, things that surround us that remind us of our colonial past and are celebrated by some people, but by Aboriginal people... It's nothing to celebrate about these place names. One of the things I found most impressive about your film is that you don't resile from telling stories that I, I suspect you would have preferred not to tell, and I'm thinking about the perversion embodied in the native police corps. Yes, well... People might not know much about the native police uh, because, of course, it's just not really taught in schools. It's not really part of the national narrative. So you can absolutely be forgiven for not knowing a lot of this history because people like me, well, I'm 52. I wasn't taught any of this in school. And so many people, the overwhelming, overwhelming response to this series is we never knew this, we were never taught it at school. And, look, the native police is should be known throughout Australia. I mean, it operated for 50 years, like 5 50 years, a police force set up by the Queensland colonial government, that is the government that has its roots in a modern <laughs> Queensland government, is operated by them, funded by them, and its main purpose was to defend Europeans as they moved across the north of Queensland and through a process of what was called dispersal, which is one of these, you know, euphemisms. Um, For, forgive me for interrupting, but we've got to make the point that the Native Police Corps was made up of Aboriginal men. 
Yes, uh, yes, absolutely it was. It, it was, uh, they were used because they were expert trackers, very good horsemen and became very adept with weapons. And so they, in a way, neutralised some of the advantage that Aboriginal people had against Europeans. So although they were deliberately recruited many hundreds of kilometres away from their, you know, where their own people were to go and fight out on the frontier because they knew that you would not get Aboriginal people to shoot their very own people, their own tribe, if you want, language, group, nation, whatever you want to call it. So it was a very deliberate strategy by the Queensland government. They were led by white police officers and there were clear instructions that no other white people should be with them because they didn't want a body of evidence about what they were up to. But everybody knew what they were up to. It Rachel, was a, a, surely they must have been deeply conflicted. Yes, well, we know very little about what they thought, those men. Uh, but we know from their actions that many of them escaped. And if they escaped, they could be shot. So these were very high stakes for these men. And we know that sometimes so many of them escaped that the police didn't have native policemen to go and get them because they'd all escaped. So we know that a lot of them were recruited out of jail and uh, were told that, you know, their sentence, they wouldn't have to complete their sentence if they joined the native police. We know that some were recruited at the butt end of a rifle. So it's a complex situation. And then some obviously joined because they wanted to, you know, the prestige, access to women, um, you know, the uniforms and guns and horses. There would have been attractions in that. And some perhaps didn't even realise what they were getting into. But there's very little evidence of what they thought and felt about all of this. The records that you uh, dramatise tells us of 150 native police camps across Queensland alone and responsibility for the deaths of about 72,000 Indigenous people. Yes, and of course that figure of 72,000 is always going to be an estimate, right? Because... No one really gave much of a damn how many people they were killing and also there was a lot of cover-ups, right? So people didn't take down names. Oh, I've just shot Jagamara and Parula, you know. They just shot people in groups of one, two, tens, sometimes hundreds and then sometimes they would burn the bodies and sometimes they would just leave them in the sun, you know, to you know, decay. So people say, we want figures, you know, where's the figures, where's the numbers? It's like, well, people didn't collect numbers and names on the frontier. We certainly collected the names of non-Indigenous people who were killed by Aboriginal people. We can give very definitive body counts there, but not on the other side of the frontier. And we'll never know. Rachel, one of the things I didn't know before watching your series was the situation could have been different in South Australia because of the letters patent from Glenelg. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so the letters patent are basically the instructions from the King and are the foundational documents of South Australia. So they come through the colonial office, which manages all of the British colonies around the world. And South Australia was occupied in the 1830s. It's a period coming out of slavery, um, abolishment of slavery, it's people are more enlightened, so they want to do something different. They realise that 
their presence and the occupation of Aboriginal land results in death and conflict. So they try to change that in some ways by recognising Aboriginal rights to land. And they say that in any negotiations or access to land, you must acknowledge Aboriginal people's right to land and negotiate or trade with them over that land. But of course, you know, these high ideals in London, when they get here to the colony, you know, the the expansionist sort of um, motivation is so strong, no one cares and, well... And yet for just, the, <laughs> just for a moment there were possibilities of a treaty. Just for a moment. And I feel that particularly because, of course, South Australia took over the administration of the Northern Territory, the land that I'm now sitting in, and that government could have done more. If that government did more we perhaps wouldn't have had the massacre of my family and perhaps today we might have some land rights if they followed through on the instructions, but they didn't. The only way we know a lot of the stories of massacres is through oral histories, but in the, well, in the past, during the history wars, these accounts were seen as unreliable by certain notorious historians. That must frustrate you. Well... Just to slightly correct that, the massacres we know mostly about do come from white people who've written them down in one way or another. So that body of evidence is very strong. We do also, as you say, have oral histories which tell a story as well. And there are so many accounts of those. And they don't necessarily have, you know, a written account from a white fella next to it to back it up like in relation to my own family. Like that is a family oral history and it's backed up by other people who remember it as well. But there's, I haven't found any police accounts of that killing. So that's why people question it. They say, oh, well, it's just oral history. It changes over time. It's like Chinese whispers, you know, we can't be relied upon. Um, but, you know, when it's your great-grandmother telling it to her daughter and then her daughter telling that to my father and my father telling it to me, it's a pretty direct line, you know, and there's no purpose to passing that on apart from, you know, it's not like we're doing it just because it happened. And, of course, these days archaeological evidence is building up to back oral histories. Yes, so in some cases there have been, you know, but there's no money for this work, you know, for archaeologists really to go out and look at massacre sites. But they have occasionally managed to get small research grants to go out and look at places where they, you know, oral history says something happened. And so they look for the physical evidence. So it might usually particles of bone. Um, But you have to keep in mind that what they're doing on the frontier is that they're destroying evidence, right? So they're burning the remains of Aboriginal people, you know, and this gets a bit ghastly, but this is what they did, chop people up um, because they burn easier and then incinerate bodies on huge fires that they would burn for a number of days with intense fuel so that the bones of Aboriginal people would um, disintegrate into smaller particles. So that sometimes they went back and actually swept up those particles and removed them. Other times they just left the bones scattered. Sometimes they would burn other animal carcasses over it to hide the remains. So what the archaeologists are looking for is these intense burns with tiny particles of bone or they're looking for other physical evidence. 
So we went to a site in the Kimberley where there was these scatters of bones found that had burned at very intense um, temperatures for long periods of time, which match the accounts of the oral history. When I drive back to the farm every week, I pass through a place called Singleton, and that was a massacre site, and there are there's scattered bones, and people think nothing of them. They just, you know, their eyes just defocus in a way. Yeah, it's... Um it's it's not a nice thing in many ways to have this history revealed because your journeys across Australia, you look at it with these eyes that understand this history as you do. And people don't want to know that necessarily. They don't want to look at these landscapes with that history in it. But if you face the truth, I've found, you know, and, and look at it openly and recognise it in some way, it helps to, you know, move on from that history. That recognition helps. Rachel, were there times in the making of the series when you wished you hadn't started? Oh, like every Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, no. <laughs> um, look, I very much felt the burden of doing justice to this story uh, on behalf of my people who really haven't had this story told in any significant way or recognised in this country in any significant way. So that was both a burden and a great motivator. And I also felt that I wanted all Australians to be able to embrace this story because it's not just a burden for Aboriginal people to carry alone. It's a story about the formation of our country as we understand it today. And that is a story that we should share as Australians, like they do in Germany, like they do in Aotearoa, New Zealand, like they do in Canada. They come to terms with their history and they embrace it as part of the national narrative. And so I really wanted to welcome non-Aboriginal people into this story. That was my aim. And I, I, I hope, I hope I have managed to achieve that but at the same time it's such a ghastly story in so many ways like you said in your opening remarks it's it's difficult but you know it's a necessary thing to come to terms with. We've often discussed uh, the great Australian silence in the program over the decades particularly with uh, with Ken Inglis but uh, let's talk about this it's estimated that as many Australians died in the frontier wars as it died from fighting in battles overseas. Yet there's never been any real attempt at commemoration. This is true. But perhaps it is distant enough now for us to be able to face it. Um, I know some people don't want to face it. I know that there's some families who do not want to come to terms with their ancestors' role in this history, and I understand that. Um, but I think, you know, the government on behalf of the Australian people and the government who carries the leadership of this nation needs to come to terms with it on behalf of the Australian people and in the national institutions which it funds on behalf of the Australian people, and I think we will see that. Well, that, let's now look at the Australian War Memorial. 
there's a part in the film where you question Matt Anderson, the director, about why the memorial largely fails to acknowledge the frontier wars. He doesn't have a very good answer. Well, I worked very closely with Matt and the War Memorial during this series and they saw all of the episodes and, you know, we provided them all the rushes of Matt's interview and I, my hope was that I respectfully engaged with the Australian War Memorial because it's very important to all Australians and particularly to Indigenous servicemen and women who are recognised in that institution. Uh, I think... Matt was in a difficult position because he must respond to the War Memorial Council and their policy on this issue. Um, We've recently seen a change in that policy, which is so welcome. But I think that um, Matt did the right thing by us. He, He allowed us to film there. He agreed to an interview and he also, you know, um, had to communicate the policy of the, you know, the council at that point. The result <laughs> is the promise of a, quote, much broader and deeper depiction. So uh, that's to your credit. Another thing the show addresses is that the remains of more than 400 people, some of whom were killed in these wars, have yet to be returned to their families. A lot of unfinished business, Rachel. So much unfinished business. And if I just might talk about that for a minute. All around Australia, there are collections of our ancestors in museums and all around the world, there are collections of our ancestors, like body parts, right, that were taken, exhumed often or from massacre sites, from burial plots, and they are now housed in these institutions, And it's a disgrace. You know, we want our ancestors to be brought back to their country. From from cardboard boxes in basements. Yes, and there's very little funding for this. You know, this was a huge trade. You know, the institutions paid and traded in Aboriginal people's remains. And these institutions still hold them. And they do not support financially the appropriate repatriation. So this is a big question that I'm actually trying to look at at the moment in my work through Indigenous heritage reform, that these ancestors get returned to their country. And so, yes, we feature in the documentary series three people who were decapitated as part of a massacre that Governor Macquarie ordered in 1815 in New South Wales. And um, they're still sitting in boxes I like the way the series is being taken into schools. This is your the driving force here. As you say, teachers don't know about this history. So you're working to teach teachers. Yes, well, I'm working with a team of Aboriginal educators who work with Culture is Life and we've developed educational materials through philanthropic support. Ian Darling has provided funds for us to make these teachers' kits and today we've got a webinar, (laughs) our first webinar with 220 teachers all across the country and we're working with them to help them to provide a culturally safe environment for young people, young Australians to be guided through this history. And so it's very exciting, I think, for me because I think that unlike me, 
and people of my generation, hopefully in the future, young Australians will understand their nation with a bit more nuance and complexity. Timing is everything and uh, your films are available as we head towards the referendum on the voice to parliament. Will it play a role, do you think? Well, I hope so. I mean... We want all Australians to come together in this moment. This referendum is a really, a really important moment for our country. I mean, I just can't emphasise that enough. It's a moment of the possibility of great unity and reconciliation. And I think if all Australians understood the history of their country a little more, a history that's been denied them, they might be more positive about trying to find the rightful place for Indigenous people and indeed Indigenous history in our founding document, in this constitution. Because let's remember that when the constitution was introduced in 1901, in 1902, Aboriginal people were banned from voting in federal elections, you know. So we're trying to we're trying to create a modern democracy that acknowledges the deep past, the Aboriginal past, you know, the British foundations and the multicultural future of this nation. And that's what this referendum's about. It's about founding a modern democracy that reflects the modern nation as we see it today. So my hope is that this series might allow people to sort of walk in our shoes and see things from our point of view a bit and, and then, you know, want to want to know about that history. We weren't responsible for that history, but actually knowing that history, what are we going to do to improve things in the future? That's what I want people to do. I remember tweeting that the series is heartbreaking and if it doesn't break your heart, you don't have one. So, beloved listeners, I urge you to watch what Rachel has done. It's a masterpiece. Thank you, Rachel. Award-winning Australian filmmaker... And you can watch The Australian Wars right now on SBS On Demand. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.